My friends, this morning we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in chapter 2, and we find ourselves hearing this message to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Before we read, let's take a moment and let's pray. Almighty God, be with us this morning as we look to your word and as we hear the voice of Jesus. We pray that you would encourage us in this broken world, that you would be with us in the middle of its trials and temptations, that you would bless us in our tribulations and allow us to see your kingdom, that you would allow us to see your great love for us, that you would allow us to see how much we are worth to you. May we find the grace of Jesus Christ and may it inspire us in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin reading in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into porneia and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her porneia, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one will rule them with an iron rod and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My brothers and sisters, as we started our journey through John's apocalypse, this revelation of Jesus Christ, you might remember at the very beginning we talked about the lampstands. We talked about menorah. And we talked about the victory parades depicted on the Arch of Titus that show us how they would parade these items that they took from the temple of God in Jerusalem to the temple of peace in Rome. And these parades would be celebrated with pomp and circumstance, with parades and with ceremonies. They would gather together all to celebrate the strength of Caesar Nero. And these churches in Asia Minor that we find in the book of Revelation existed along this way in which the returning heroes would have traveled. 
And these towns and cities along the way would have been expected to hold these celebrations. They would hold these parades. They would hear the stories of victory as they gathered together in the theaters of each place. And all of these ceremonies, all of these parades, all of these symbols of victory would be lifted up in order to continue and strengthen the power of Nero to tell his story, to spin his narrative, to declare his legacy and his legend among the people. And there are interesting accounts that exist of some of these victory celebrations. One of them we find from a historian whose name was Cassius Dio. And he was a historian and statesman of the day. He lived and wrote in the time that John lived and wrote. And he tells us about a crowd gathering at one of these outdoor theaters for a victory celebration. And what we need to know about the, the climate, what we need to know about the environment, was that these outdoor Roman theaters, they didn't have roofs. They were open air, but people didn't sit in the open air because it was hot and it was sunny. And what they would do in order to protect themselves from that hot sun is they would have awnings, cloth, that draped over them to provide shelter. This is the account of one of those victory celebrations that tells us what one of these awnings looked like. And it's very interesting. Listen closely to the images and the symbols. The crowd at the theater was protected from the sun by a purple awning at the center of which was the figure of Nero driving a chariot of bronze, surrounded by golden stars. And at his triumph, the crowds cheered their emperor with these words, Hail to Nero Apollo. Hail to Nero Apollo. Thyatira. This is the town we find ourselves in. It's about 31 kilometers outside Pergamum, a part of its governance, a part of its region. It was a small trading town along the way. It wasn't strategically significant. It wasn't big or politically powerful. It wasn't overly interesting. If we were going to think of a modern equivalent, we wouldn't even really name it because it was something of a railway town, a, a hub town, a place where roads met and where trading and industry happen. This is one of the things that we notice in places where roads come together, that economics happen. And what happened in Thyatira is the roads came from different places. And people came from one place and they brought their goods with them. And people came from another place and they brought their materials with them. And people came from another place and they brought their money with them. And all of these things exchanged in order to create economy. So Thyatira was built around this exchange of goods. And what happened is they became known for their craftspeople the people who made things from these materials and then shipped them out for further trade. And Thyatira was known for its armaments, for creating things of, of iron and of bronze, 
of weapons, of chariots, those sorts of things. Thyatira was also known as a place that created lots of good clay pots and pottery. But what they were most known for, and this is the thing that, that is understood, is that they were known for the color purple. Thyatira was the source for purple dye and cloth for the Roman Empire. We hear stories of this. One of them that we know comes in Acts chapter 16, where we find the person named Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple cloth. And in Acts chapter 16, we find that she was baptized by Paul. Uh, we understand through tradition that she was the one who went back and who shared the gospel of salvation with the people of that town. She is part of the founding, the fabric of that church. And what we understand about Thyatira, this church, the place that it existed, is that it was the place where you would find purple cloth. If there was a purple awning to be made, it came from here. The other thing we know about Thyatira is from what remains today. And not much remains of this little town, but what we do know from what remains is that it was a one temple town. Now, that doesn't mean that the pantheon of Roman deities wasn't worshipped there. They were. That doesn't mean there wasn't a synagogue of Jewish believers. There probably was. That doesn't mean there wasn't a Christian church. They tended to meet in one another's homes at that time. What we do know is that it meant that this was a small town. It wasn't a big center. And that in it, there was only one temple, one structure that was built. And that was the temple to Apollo. Who was Apollo? Well, Apollo was a Roman god in the pantheon of gods, celebrated throughout the empire. And he was the god of worship and song. If you find examples of praise, the lyre, the string, the harp, that was Apollo. Apollo was called the morning star. Apollo was understood to be the sun in the sky. Poets tell us about the escapades of Apollo. Apollo who smashed the children of Naomi with an iron rod. A purple cloth. Nero with stars around him, with a face blazing like the sun, a chariot of bronze at his feet. Such a Caesar is at hand, the poet pronounced, that a Nero shall roam gaze upon. His radiant face blazes with gentle brilliance. Are you seeing the connections between all of these images and this text that we have before us in Revelation chapter 2? This message to the angel of the church of Thyatira, the purple banner held high, declaring that Nero is Apollo, that Nero is a god. This banner that had to come from this small town and its artisans.
And this message, hail to Nero Apollo, is the one that this false prophet has been teaching. The deep secret of Satan is that Nero is God. Nero is Lord. Now in the text, Jesus calls her Jezebel. That's not her name. We don't know her name. But she is called this to symbolize the thing that she's doing. And the thing that she's doing is not new. She's doing something that has happened again and again and again in Israel's history. She's tempting people to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit pornea. The same thing that we see happening in the church of Pergamum. The eating of meat sacrificed to idols, the the buying into culture, the participating in the excesses and in the enterprise and in the riches and blessing of empire. And this week we're going to focus more on the pornea side of things. And if we look in our Bibles today, we're going to find words translating this word pornea. Some of our translations will translate it as sexual immorality. That translation isn't particularly helpful. Uh, The King James Version will talk about it and it will translate the word as harlotry. And that's a better translation, but we don't use that word much anymore in today's society. If we were to translate it well and accurately, the word actually means to sell yourself as a prostitute. But even in hearing that definition, we are missing the point. Because when it is used by Hebrews in a prophetic context, it is not about prostitution, even though that is taboo. It is a metaphor for something that is more important. This phrase of eating meat sacrificed to idols and pornea is very important because it is an image of something greater, something spiritual that is going on. When we hear about pornea, we want to link it to this context of sex, but what we find is that as it's used throughout the Bible, it is rarely used for that purpose. We hear it when we hear about Esau, and we find him in Hebrews chapter 12. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And because he did that, he practiced pornea. We find it when we hear Israel described through the metaphor of Hosea and Gomer's relationship, the unfaithful wife. And Israel, in the story of Hosea, was the one who was practicing pornea and adultery. And when we go back to the story of Jezebel, where the word isn't used, what we find throughout her story during the reign of King Ahab, the evil king in 1 Kings, is the story of someone who drew the nation, who drew Israel into pornea. Not sex. You will not find sex in the story of Jezebel. What she did 
is that she got the Israelites under King Ahab to build altars to her God, to Baal, and to kill the prophets of Yahweh God, and to accept bribes in order to sell themselves out, like we find in the example of Naboth's vineyard. This is the act of porneia, as we find it in the Bible. It's selling yourself for an empire, or for an inheritance, or for something that is far less valuable than the value that God holds you to be worth. Porneia is trading yourself for something that is unworthy. Harlotry, the practice of prostitution. Eating meat sacrificed to idols and porneia are two sides of the same coin. And when they are used together, you need to see it in light of idolatry and false gods and empire and economy. Either you are buying into the empire and eating, or you are selling out to the empire and you're hopping in to bed at a price that you are somewhat comfortable with. And this is what the image of Jezebel is about. This is what the name is meant to provoke. That there is someone who is this, in this community who has been tolerated, who has been teaching about the cult of Nero. This message from Jesus leaves no doubt that this is what is going on. And if you are from Thyatira, you know what is being talked about when you hear about these images and what they represent of sun and stars, of Apollo and morning star, of chariots and bronze, of Nero and his blazing face all on a purple awning. That's the culture. That's the symbol. That's the thing that Jezebel is selling. And so like Jezebel tempting God's people to bail by enticing some and buying others and killing the rest, now God's people are being pulled to a new choice. The buying and selling of Nero, and the choice to whether you want to worship Christ or Caesar, whether Jesus is Lord or Nero is Lord. And this comes up again. We've already seen it, and we will see it again and again through the, the apocalypse. This continued clash between kingdom and empire, the victory parades and the banners, stories of dragons that tell the story of Jesus, but sound like the story of Apollo, the story of chariots, the visions given to this particular time and place where there are false teachers and prophets, where there are politicians and governors, where there are factions and divisions from the outside and from the inside for poverty and riches, the threat of death, and the offer of plenty. Whether you have the sword of Pergamum or the seduction of Thyatira, the meat sacrificed to idols in Pornea remain, and the snares of Satan are many. This is the problem going on in the world. And that problem goes on today. The snares of Satan are many, and we 
exist within them. And in the middle of all of this, what we find in the middle of this message to this church and in the middle of the messages to all the church, to the seven churches, and that's important to see in the text, that this is four of seven, right in the middle of all of them, is this message that says, hold firm. The, liter- the word literally means seize. Take hold of what you have now. Own your faith. And Jesus says, I won't place any other burden on you than that. Just don't let go of me and I won't let go of you. This is the message to the church in Thyatira. As they hear the false teachings of Nero, as they hear the promise, as they see his victory, as they see him demonstrating it again and again and again, look at me, look at my great hair, look at my good looks, look at my face, look at my power. I am Apollo. I am God. And Jesus says in the middle of that, don't buy into it. Don't sell out to it. Take a hold of me. And that's a good place to be, because what we see in this text is a deconstruction of all of Nero's claims. All the images that Nero invokes to celebrate his victories, to claim that he is Apollo, that he is a god, are met by the reality of Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who we find at the very beginning of the text, as we find his image to John, as we find his face blazing, We find the Son of God around whom the stars shine. We see the right hand of Jesus on the shoulder of the church in Thyatira, that same right hand that was pierced with nails for the purpose of grace, connected to that same body that was dressed in purple cloth by Roman soldiers. That same hand on their shoulder saying, hold on to me and I will hold on to you. Because what Satan is offering, even if it's the whole world, isn't worth what you're worth to me. The message of grace, the hand of Jesus, his dying and his rising, remind us of the cost that Jesus paid for our lives for the forgiveness of our sins, for our victory into eternity. And Jesus says to us, hold on. Seize that. Because everything else isn't worth it. Now, how do we apply this message to the churches, to our lives today, as we hear about this deconstruction of Nero? As we hear about this prophetess teaching these false things, in the midst of the church. Because we're not that church, and we don't have purple banners over our heads, and we don't have a prophetess amongst us spreading the cult of Nero. Nero's been dead for 2,000 years. Well, we might be tempted to give new names to these people, to draw lines to today's political realities, to replace one name for another or to accuse one of being Jezebel or another. It's really tempted for us to do that today. As we look to our screens and we see a man being murdered before our eyes unjustly. 
as we see the false teaching of racism that permeates society and has seduced the church, as we see politicians puff themselves up in front of cameras and, and, and say that they are the solution. And perhaps we can draw lines and we can say that this is what the text means. And certainly, certainly it's an implication that these things are not from God. And the Bible tells us that the nations are nothing more than pottery. And that these people who call themselves gods or who put themselves up in front of us are not the final authority. They do not rule the world. And we can do that. But we also need to see the grander point of the text. That this isn't a message for Caesar, who died and is not Lord, or whoever that might be today. And it's, it's not even for the prophetess, whoever she might be today, because we're told in this, in this vision that she's had her chance, and, and that chance is over. She did not repent. Instead, this message comes to us. And it's a message that is important not only in today's context as we denounce these horrible things going on, as we decry the arrogance of leaders, as we deplore the, the racism of this world, as we see the injustice uh, in the death of this man and demand better, we also recognize that this message reminds us that whoever it is that claims to be Lord in this world among the many pretenders and the many different false teachings that might come, whatever they may be, whether it is a person or an idea, a culture or a practice, whether it is a leader or a politician or a philosophy or a religion, it can be the economy and it can be a nation. It can be a community. And it can be a great evil. It can be racism. It can be white nationalism. And it can be party, left, right, and center. But what the message of this text is, that all of these earthly things that we might buy into and sell ourselves for, none of these things are Jesus. And none of these things are his kingdom. None of these things are Lord, and none of these things are valuable. And whatever the salesperson may look like, whoever Jezebel may be, man or woman, whatever they're offering, if it isn't that Jesus is Lord, and buying in and selling out to his kingdom and his life and his justice and righteousness and eternal goodness, then we say no, because it's not a good deal for the thing that we already have. Thyatira is a town of economy and trade. There are people buying and there are people who are selling. And that's the existence we are in in this world. And each day it's a new thing and a new salesperson coming to our door, whether it's money or it's power or it's sex, whether it's the whole world or it's a bowl of stew. All of these things are nothing compared to the shoulder the hand that is on your shoulder. The hand of Jesus, who died for you. That's the value of grace. This is the Christian life.
This is who you are to God. This is what you're worth. Living in the reality of that grace of Jesus who died and rose for you, who holds on to you and promises to never let you go. And all he asks is to take hold of my hand. Seize it. Hold fast to what you have to me, the true son of God. With eyes that truly burn like fire. With feet of bronze, not of fake chariots. Seize your faith. Own your faith. Live your faith. Follow Jesus and remember that he is the bright morning star. It is his hand that is upon your shoulder. Take hold of it. He is Lord. This is the word of God for us. We, his people. Shall we pray? Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word and how it challenges the realities that are around us. Each day, we hear the news and we see the parades and the victories and the celebrations. We see those who would puff up their chest and declare themselves to be Lord. We run into the ideals of empire, economics that oppress, ideas that divide, people that hate. In our lives, we run into poverty and threat and tribulation, but we also run into temptation and seduction. And all of these things designed to turn us away from you. to declare something that is not true, to sell ourselves for something that is less worthy, that is not worthy, that is beneath our value. We thank you that in these moments you put your hand on our shoulder and you remind us that you have taken hold of us. You have laid claim to our lives through the gift of dying and rising, the grace of Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins and who has guaranteed our life eternal. And we pray that in the middle of every temptation and every pretender to the throne, that you would remind us of who that hand is connected to, that we would turn and see Jesus, who is the morning star. We would see Jesus, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, we would see Jesus whose eyes blaze like fire. We would see Jesus whose feet are as bronze. And that in seeing these things, we would know that he is Lord. And nobody else is. And Lord, we pray for the grace of being able to take hold of his hand upon our shoulder to receive that grace and to know our worth and to know each day as each pretender comes to the door that what we have is truly valuable and that we are truly valuable to you. May we see no to the, say no to the things that are broken and unworthy. May we say no to the powers and principalities of this world. 
May we say no to the the things that call us to lesser lives. May we say no to the trials and temptations. May we say no on this day to racism and to hatred and oppression. May we say no to the arrogance that murders and puts one life above another. May we say no to violence and may we be ambassadors of peace and reconciliation. Lord, help us to see you always, to take hold of you, to seize you, to own our faith, to live your kingdom in this world. And we pray that that kingdom would come in this day and for every day, and that it would come quickly in the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.